0: I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 18. We will resume our uh, study of the parables uh, with the overarching theme of windows into God's kingdom now that uh, Lent and Easter are behind us. And so we'll turn to this uh, passage out of Matthew 18, uh, and there are some familiar stories uh, within that passage. But we'll read the verses 1 through 14. It'll also be on the screen, I believe. At that time, and this time Jesus was heading towards Jerusalem on his last journey there, it would end uh, with his crucifixion and then resurrection and then ultimately his ascension. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because these things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that, my, that there are angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go and look for the one who wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier the, about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way our Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever been compelled to do something that you didn't want to do? Stop thinking for a moment. Is this thing dead? Alive again. When I was 10 years old, that's now 62 years ago, I was forced to go to vacation Bible school. I did not want to go. Summer was for playing. School sucked. Then, I'd go back to school in a heartbeat today. But my sister, was the director of the Vacation Bible School, and my parents felt compelled to support her. And so I went. Two things stand out. We made plaster scene molds with shepherd on the front and sheep. Those molds were made one day, and then we spent many days dabbing paint on them and they, and my mold hung above my bed for, I don't know how many years. The other thing that st- learned the song, there were ninety and nine that safely lay in the shelter of the fold, but one was lost on the hills away. How many of you know that song? See, some of us born in the 50s know that. We sang it every day. And two lessons have come to me now, 60-some years later. Number one, the importance of the decisions that parents make for the well-being of their children. They had to overcome my resistance, no doubt my tears, no doubt my anger. But that event of going to vacation Bible school shaped my life and put a picture in my mind of how God functions. He is there to be the shepherd of the sheep. It also shaped my future although at the time I did not know it because for a number of decades I was privileged to shepherd congregations, to pastor congregations, to look out for people who were not only sick but people who had fled the community, people who struggled with doubt, people who struggled with anger, people who struggled with unforgiveness, people who struggled with hurt because of what the community known as the church had done or said or left undone. You know the reality The reality of community is a reality of a work in progress. And Jesus talks to his disciples who are concerned about their conception of reality. They see him heading towards Jerusalem. They are anticipating what they think is going to happen. He at this time will become king in Israel. He, at this time, will take the throne. He, at this time, will be coronated. He, at this time, will appoint a cabinet. He, at this time, will assign duties and responsibilities to them. And they will have what they currently do not have, And I find it helpful to think about all of those things with the letter P. They will have position. They will be somebody's. They will have prestige. When they walk in the street, people will stand and clear the way. And if you want to anticipate that, in a few weeks' time, King Charles will be coronated and you just watch what prestige will bring. People will stand back, people will pay reverence. They will not only have prestige, but they will have power. When they ask something to happen, it will happen. And they will be recognized by the abundance of the possessions that they get. So they'll have position and prestige and power, and possessions, and no doubt they will also have potential for the future. And the disciples, as they walk along at this time with Jesus, ask him, in the Gospel gospel of Luke, uh, Luke reveals that they were debating amongst each other as to who would get what. They ask him, will you at this time appoint us to positions? They're looking out for themselves. They're looking out for their concept of the kingdom. Now Jesus provides us through these stories that we call parables, insights, an opportunity to peek through a window to see what the kingdom of God is really like. And Jesus, and this is to the delight of preachers and storytellers, Jesus will use the same story in different contexts. So if you go, for example, to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 15, we looked at that last, late last year in, in the month of October. There are three stories in Luke chapter 15 about losses and seeking and finding. There's a story about the shepherd... Who has a hundred sheep and one is lost and he goes and finds it and then luke says and great was their rejoicing in heaven over the one who was lost and found then there's the story about the woman who has ten coins and one is lost and she sweeps her whole house until she finds one the one that is lost. And then there is great rejoicing in her community because the one that was lost is found. And so you saw the going from 100 to 10, and then there's going to one. There was a father who had two sons. And one said, Dad, I want to have my share of the estate. And then he goes and he leaves it. And his father, it leaves the estate and wastes it. And his father waits for him And when he he sees his son coming, all impoverished and poor and destitute, powerless, he runs to meet him and embraces him. And then we are introduced to the older son who stands back and says, don't want anything to do with him. That's where Jesus uses also this particular parable that he tells in this context, which is different. So... Preachers use the same stories in different contexts, at different times, because it's a handy tool. We're also delighted in the fact that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount in two different locations. In Matthew, you find he preaches it on the Mount. In Luke, you find he preaches it on the plain. I sometimes think I should... Some of you may remember this program, Paladin, from the late 1950s on TV, when, you know, TV was sort of sinful, Paladin, Paladin, Where'er I Roam? Right? And he had a, had a card, have gun, will travel. And people say, what do you do? I say, have sermon, will travel. Right? Jesus had sermons, and he traveled, and he preached the same one in different locations. That's a wonderful message of freedom and liberation. But the message was always the same, about the kingdom of God. And it is not about position, it is not about prestige, it is not about power, it is not about possessions, it is not about potential, it is about attitude, it is about service. And so they asked him this question. They, they look to themselves. What's in it for us? And they probably ask, what's in it for me? What's in it for my privilege and my position and my power and my possessions and my potential? And it is interesting that Jesus doesn't immediately resort to words. He looks around and he sees a child. And the Greek word there for child implies a child at the most of age 12. And he calls this child to come. It's not an infant, because an infant presumably in parents, probably mother's arms, can't come on their own volition. Well, this is a child who can hear and respond and Jesus calls this child to him. He says, unless you become like this child. Well, what, what does he imply here? Unless you become like this child. Unless you become humble. I don't know about you, but I've seen many kids, 12 and under, who aren't very humble, who are all about me and mine, and who want their possessions and their privilege, who want, indeed, to exercise power. So I don't think humility is in play here. But I do think vulnerability is. These children are vulnerable. I'm reading a history of the land of Scotland right now and as I read that history I'm being introduced to the whole impact of steam engines and industrialization and the need for fuel and the fuel for the steam engines was coal and the coal had to be mined and the mine shafts were small so who was put into service? Children. It wasn't until 1849 that child labor laws protected the vulnerable. Six-year-old children were sent down into the depths of mines, and the minimum that they could carry back, the minimum that they could carry back at one time was 40 pounds. Just stop to think about that. And they would work 12 to 16 hours per day. And this is Presbyterian Scotland that took it all quite seriously and exploited children. Thanks be to God for governments who finally pass laws that say you can't do that. But children can be very vulnerable. They cannot achieve for themselves what they need to achieve, that has to be provided to them. For them, it is not about earning. For them, it is about receiving. And when we think about our relationship with God, it is not about earning. It is about receiving. For the gift of God, the amazing grace that we just sang about, is that which comes to people who are wretched in their sin, broken in their relationships with God themselves, each other and the creation, and who receive a gift that says, as, as Mark's saying, you know, God has a wonderful plan for you, a God of love. And a god of mercy and a god of grace who says you turn to me in full dependence and i will meet your need the kingdom of god is not about power and position and prestige and potential and possessions it is about service it is about service And so Jesus says to his disciples, to his followers, to those who have been with him for some years, and that distinction, I think, is important. I'll explain in a minute. Jesus says to them who are looking to say, now, what is in it for me? And he says, what's in it for you is an attitude that is one of service. The one of giving out of love. Someone once shared with me this definition of love, which I I have memorized and I thought that's really good. Love is giving up that which has value to you in order to enrich the life of another. Love is giving up that which has value to you in order to enrich the life of another. And think of the heart of the gospel, John 3:16. For God so gave up his son who had value to him in order to enrich my life and your life. And Jesus says to his disciples, serve, give up what has value to you to enrich the life of another. And then he goes on in these particular stories as Matthew records them, to warn people, his disciples, about the problems that will be caused if they fail to develop that attitude. Woe to you, he says. and He repeats it a number of times. But here, the phrase, the little ones, those who believe in me, is a different word than the word he called a child to himself. So you have to be aware of that. No longer is the 12 or younger in focus. Now the person in focus is the little one who believes in him. That is the disciple who is very childlike and immature in faith, but maybe 36 years of age, or 72, or 18. You fill in the blank. He says, woe to you, If you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. And to stumble is, of course, to trip. Remember when I was here a few weeks ago, the kids ran out and one of the little kids stumbled. And he says, oh, I'm okay. Okay, I'm okay. Nothing further to impede the, the, the progress that he was doing. But imagine you trip someone up and they're not okay something breaks, there's a deep hurt that prevents growth, that prevents maturity, that prevents development, and Jesus says, whoa, he says, whoa, he says, says, now stumbling is bound to happen in this world. This world is a difficult place to live in. I mean, Larry talked about people in his prayer about those who are unemployed or those who are underemployed or those who are employed in a situation wherein they find no no joy, no thankfulness, but just rancor and bitterness and anger and frustration, and that spills over when they live in community. Stumbling is bound to happen, but he says, woe to you if you're the one who causes someone to stumble. He's inviting us to look through the window into the kingdom and to help us to understand the responsibility that we have, the attitude development that we need to undertake. And then Jesus exercises Extreme hyperbole. He says, if, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. One of the early church fathers by the name of Origen had himself castrated exactly for that reason because he felt like he could not control his sexual urges. You saw the sign earlier about our hypersexualized. sexualized uh, life and and lifestyle and community, etc., much better to go to one of those conferences than to engage in self-mutilization. He's not saying literally you should cut your hand off or that you should pluck your eye out. But he is saying you should take your responsibility seriously. You need to exercise growth in being a shepherd of God's People and being a servant, a display of Jesus Christ in this world. You need to take that seriously. And all you have to do is read church history. Church history, which, you know, has exercised blood curdling decisions. Just read. The history of the Crusades. Just read the history of the Inquisition. Just read the history of the Salem witch trials. And there were also witch trials in Scotland, I've discovered. Just think about financial mismanagement within our own time and century. Or all the many leaders who have used their power and position and prestige and privilege to sexually abuse other people within the church and the damage that that has caused. And can you understand that Jesus says, you need to take your role as a shepherd seriously. And then there's this little interesting story in there about their angels. And you can think about, does every one of us have a guardian angel? Well, I'm not sure. I I like to think that that's possible, but, you know, that's only one reference in the scriptures. But what I am sure of is this, that you... And those around you in your community have God's attention. And that God will come in judgment. And how we conduct ourselves, how we live out our life, our conviction is extremely important. Having addressed those things, Jesus drives it all home with a story. There were ninety and nine that safely lay. But one was lost on the hills away. Why? Well, story is so important because stories invite us in. This is not just a doctrinal statement that you can... Pin on the wall and look at it. You know, when I was thinking about that uh, this week in pre- preparing because my memory was going back. And and the first church that we worshipped in when I was an immigrant at the age of three and we could begin to read was the Williamsburg Christian Reformed Church, uh, about 60 miles away from Ottawa. And over the top of the pulpit, and the pulpit was in a parabolic shaped thing, so the pastor could stand right at the focal point and he could project, but over top of that is psalm one hundred and nineteen verse one hundred and five. Anyone know that by heart? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light upon my path. First scripture passage I ever memorized i in university years. I helped reconstruct that church, and I knocked that pulpit sign down. But 18 months, no, not even 15 months ago, I did a funeral in that church of a good and, and wonderful friend. And in a new church, it's still there. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We're invited into story, not statements on a wall because story invites us in and makes us consider if I were in that situation what would I have done? Just let me refer you to Jonah. Go to Nineveh, that great city and preach against it. In 40 days you will be destroyed. Shortest, not a great sermon. Don't think it would have passed at seminary. Shortest sermon in the scriptures, as far as I know. Yet 48, what would you have done? Would you have gone to that great enemy? Or would you have run in the other direction? Or the conflict that the sailors had when Jonah says, well, throw me overboard. And they said, nah, we're not going to do that. We'll just row harder until the waves got bigger. And they threw him overboard. What would you have done? And then Jonah gets there. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. They were Israel's great enemy. And they all repent. And Jonah said to God, I told you so. I told you so. You're so full of mercy. He sits outside. He's waiting for cataclysm to happen. God sends a big leafy tree to grow. Then he sends a tiny little worm, kills the leaf or the tree. Jonah gets angry. I told you so. What would you have done? And then God comes. Ah, Jonah, there are 120,000 people here who don't know their left hand from their right hand. In other words, kids and many cattle beside what, you do, what do you expect me to do, Jonah? Be merciless? Invite you in. This story about the shepherd invites you in. If you have a hundred loonies in your pocket, or just lighter, you know, a hundred dollar bills when they still existed, and you lost one, would you have all been bent out of shape? Eh, you probably say, I got ninety-nine others. You know, one one loony, one dollar bill, that's not such a big deal. I went to seminary with some young men who had been at in Vietnam as soldiers. And and so, you know, you talk to them about their experience and how that shaped them. And then I read one story which has stuck in my brain ever since. There were two mothers. They each had a son in Vietnam, and it so happened that both their sons had the same name, George. Every Sunday afternoon, the mothers wrote to their sons. Every Monday morning, they went to the post office before the mailman, or woman, gathered the mail and took it into the next distribution station. So they met there every Monday morning. One of the mothers had only one son, George. The other mother had 12 sons. The one with the one said to the one with the 12, I don't quite understand. I have one son who's in Vietnam, but you have 11 other sons at home. Why are you here every Monday morning? And mother responded and says, yes, you're right. I have 11 other sons at home, but I only have one George. See, I only have one George. Our heavenly father is a seeking father and he seeks you and he seeks your brother your sister your cousin your uncle your aunt your grandparent your friend he seeks you if you have wandered away perhaps accidentally or deliberately or because someone has hurt you but you have wandered away and he seeks you and he will not seek you because quit seeking you because in the words of a poet god our heavenly father is the hound of heaven and he will not give up. And we are his hands, his feet, his voice, his person reaching out to each other, seeking to bring in those who are lost. We cannot take that lightly. We must indeed recognize the importance of our attitude, but also the importance of the community of faith in which we live. We were designed for community, and we need to build that community. We need to strive to keep that community whole and healthy and vibrant, and that is not easy. It takes the best that each one of us has to offer. Not only are we built for community, but we need, in the building of community to do something really important when that community recovers someone or something like vibrancy and health. We need to celebrate. We need to celebrate the good that God is doing because God is meeting us in our vulnerabilities. He's meeting us in our pain. He's meeting us in our sorrow. And he is wanting to bring healing and restoration. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you for the example of Jesus who came out of love to give what was valuable to you so that he might enrich our lives. We pray that you would meet us in our vulnerabilities, that you would help us to recognize how important it is to have an attitude of service. And you would help us to recognize the importance of the reality of community. We pray, Lord God, that each one of us may take our calling seriously. That we may live it out to your honor and to your praise. We thank you for the things that we have already achieved. We look forward to the things that you will still do through us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.